Jesus, we want to say thank you to you. You alone are holy. You alone deserve worship. You alone are Savior. You alone are perfect. You alone are light. You alone are merciful. You alone care for your people. You alone hold the world. You alone minister to our spirits. You alone care for the church, uphold it. You alone minister to us through your word. You alone are the pastor of this church. You alone are the head of the church, the body. You alone deserve all glory, honor, and praise. Praise be to you, Christ. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit in a special way as we open up the scriptures to exalt Christ. That um, feelings of condemnation and doubt and hesitancy would go away. That you would shed light on us through your word. You would minister to people in low places and lift them high with the hope of the gospel. You would crush hard hearts in a way that they would repent and believe upon the gospel. That you would use this time, Lord, this ordinary time, in extraordinary ways. So you alone would get all praise and glory. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure many, how many of you uh, actually know this about me or not. But uh, one of the things that I enjoy most in life is a nice pair of sneakers. Um, I'm a sneakerhead. Uh, my wife Lizzie uh, laughs at me all the time, especially before we go out somewhere nice, because what I do before we leave the house is get a, uh, a damp towel or a wet rag, and I wipe down my shoes, make sure they're clean. I've done this all my life. I inherited this practice from my dad. It was part of my culture. If you got nice shoes, you're the man. So I'd like to have nice shoes and clean soles. Um, no pun intended. Uh, but uh, it's been exciting uh, for me uh, because I don't, uh, although myself, I don't really keep up with all the latest trends and styles, um, especially amongst the youths, the global sneaker market within the past five years has exploded. In fact, in 2021, the market for sneakers increased almost by 20%. And uh, in 2022, sneaker sales globally totaled $152 billion. It's a huge number, $152 billion globally for sneakers. But here's the thing. Uh, with the growing and increased presence of the sneaker market, there also has come a growing and increased market for counterfeit sales. Guess how much the, the counterfeit sa uh, sales sneaker market was estimated to be worth last year? $450 billion. That's, that's more than five times the value of legitimate sneaker market. In other words, in pursuit of the real thing, sneaker buyers, if they are not careful, will end up walking around in the fake thing. And so they, um, they have to know what they're looking for. Sneaker buyers and sneakerheads have this list of criteria um, to, to think through as they make their sneaker purchases so they don't get scammed, end up with um, empty bank accounts on counterfeit shoes. This morning, um, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 John, and this is exactly what the author John here is seeking to do for the church in light of their faith. During this time in context, uh, there was false teachers that had arisen from within the doors of the church, and in light of their teaching, which claimed to be true, John is writing to the true believers within the church to tell them that it's not. He wanted to give them a list of criteria. 
gospel criteria in order for them to actually do two things. Number one, to consider and examine their own lives to see if their faith is, was indeed right and orthodox. And number two, give them some, the tools necessary to consider others' people's faith in and around the church and see if they could sniff out or sense a false gospel. And so this, this morning, is what I'd like to do together with you. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that open. Or on, I've titled the sermon this morning, if you look there, how to tell if our faith is true. How to tell if our faith is true. I'd like to show you three things from this text, a list of criteria. Number one, I'd like to show you what is accurate belief. Number two, I'd like to show you what is evident Christian life. And number three, I'd like to show you what is dependent confession. Accurate belief, evident life, and dependent confession. We're going to begin our time together by reading the text up front. Again, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you accurate belief. Well, as we begin our time together here, it's helpful for us to keep in mind um, our, our study from last week. We looked at verses one through four together, and what we saw, especially towards the end of the text, was John's emphasis on fellowship with God through Jesus. If you remember, um, John began this sermon here by talking about the word of life. And we discovered together that the word was a reference to Christ himself. After having understood this, we also saw that John was advocating for his appointed position over the church as an apostle. Apostles alone had the authority to teach and establish true Christian doctrine. And so John began by elaborating on all of his qualifications that not only he, but a select group of men that he belonged to, the apostles, had. They had been eyewitnesses of Christ. They had received personal callings from Christ. And they had been commissioned by Jesus himself to this unique task of leading the church. And so this morning, as we begin to look at verse 5 here, you'll notice that the first thing that John is doing again is not just referring back to Christ, but also to his time with him. He says this, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. John is saying, Church, let me summarize Jesus' teaching for you. I want to personally tell you what I heard and received from him. Okay, what's the message? Are you ready for John's gospel? Here it is. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's the gospel. That God is 
light. And uh, I don't know about you, but after first hearing this, especially after first hearing this without further study, um, at first I'm thinking like, really, John? Is this the gospel you're going to give to us, man? After all that you have heard and seen and witnessed of walking and living with Christ the Savior for three years, you're going to give us this? It's almost as if my six-year-old son, JJ, could have told me this. At first, this statement that God is light kind of sort of seems watered down, seems kind of cheap, very similar to the phrase that many of us have heard before in Christian circles that God is love. Because of its spiritual ambiguity, vagueness, and or misuse, sometimes we cringe at statements like this. But let me remind you here that this statement is not just biblical, meaning perfect and true, but that this statement here is also infinitely inexhaustible and is to serve as the cornerstone to our faith. In fact, this one statement here, that God is light, is known to be one of the greatest theological statements in all of the Bible. Why? Well, because generally speaking, what the scriptures do for us as readers from Genesis to Revelation is give us a sense for who God is and what he is like by and through his words and actions. But if you notice here, instead of focusing on God's character, what John is doing is expounding upon the essence of his nature. One man named David Jackman said this, none of the authors of the Bible tell us so much about what God really is, as does John. Some tell us about what he does. Others describe the glory that surrounds him. But John tells us his true nature. A nature which is prefaced without a definite article. What is he talking about? Well, if you look there, John, John doesn't say that God is the light. Neither does he say that God is a light. But rather, here he says that God is light himself. In other words, John is not merely answering the question, who is God? But he is answering more of the question, what is God? And he says, God is light. This idea of light is, is found all throughout the scripture. Psalm 27 says this, the Lord is my light and salvation. Chapter 39, for with you, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Chapter 104, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. You wrap yourself in light as with a garment. When the prophet Isaiah wrote on behalf of God to his people, this is what he said. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the verses go on and on about God being light but in each of these verses and more, light is, an, is, an, is a strikingly appropriate image of God because it portrays him as the true source of revelation, of certainty, of stability, of vision, of wisdom, and most of all, of salvation. And so here in this passage before us, we have the comparison and contrast themes between light and darkness. And it is the nature of light that is visible which makes other things visible. And so God's nature makes himself known. In other words, our God is a revelatory God. His own essence reveals himself. This idea of light here symbolizes righteousness and purity and holiness and truth 
And what it does for us ultimately is turn us back to the teaching that John gave us in his first gospel. Do you remember what he said? We read it last week. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what I'm trying to show us here through John's writing is that the revelation that John gives us of God is not a result of philosophical exploration or or vague spirituality, but rather of a message proclaimed and embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. In other words, John was able to receive the message that God is light because being the only son of the Father, sharing of his same essence and nature, Jesus being light himself had revealed himself to John. John's authority to write this and our um, authority to believe this rests on this, that the hidden eternal life and light of God himself was embodied in time and space and revealed in one man. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The reason why John starts off this book with this teaching here is because God is the starting point of our faith and Christ is the only way that we are able to know him. If Christ was not fully divine, then our faith system is in vain. But since God is light and he in flesh stepped into this world to shine light into dark places, we as people, through this gospel light, are able to see the Father and walk in light. Every night I take my two boys up to, um, up to bed. Most nights, well, that, uh, most nights I take them up to bed. And we have this really big um, stairwell that goes from the foyer to our second story uh, in our house. And... Um, We stand before that big, dark, scary hallway with no light, no windows, no nothing. It's pitch dark. And I watch my boys get scared. And um, we have this thing that we do. I say, boys, take out your Bibles. And this is their Bibles. And I say, boys, are you ready to open up your Bibles? And they say, yeah, dad. And then I said, okay, open them. And they go like this. The first time I ever did it, they didn't know it was coming. I turned behind them without them knowing. I flitched on the light switch real quick. So as soon as they did this, the whole hallway went up and they're like, whoa. They're like, wow, dad, look at this. I'm like, yeah. I said, buddies, I actually did that. But uh, that's the gospel for you, sons. The light shines in darkness. And the darkness has been overcome by the light. And at first, when they looked at the darkness, that what was in the darkness was vague, unknown, and scary, unclear, uncertain. It made them hesitant. But when this light shined in an instance, 
clarity filled their vision and sight, and with confidence they are to, able to travel up to the next story of our home. John is saying God is light, and Christ is the light of the world who has stepped into this world to shine the light of darkness, uh, of, uh, uh, shine the light into dark places. Where is the ultimate dark place that is found in this world? It is the human heart. The gospel, the light of the gospel shines light into the human heart in order for us to be able to see, know, sense, relate to, and be brought near to God the Father. And so I guess I'll just ask you the really appropriate, simple question, crucial question. Have you seen God? Do you know God? Have the spiritual eyes of your heart been opened to behold his beauty? If it has, then your life will change. No one can see God the Father without first seeing the Son. It is through the person and work of the Son that we are able to see God the Father. If anyone were to see God the Father in a wretched estate, they'd die. But God in his mercy has sent the invisible picture of himself in Jesus Christ to reveal his grace, this gospel that we believe in. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things. And in him all things are held together. For God was pleased to have the fullness of his deity dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that he shed on a cross. What I'm trying to say is that the eyes of our hearts need to be opened, not just through the historical figure Christ, but to the spiritual reality of his person and work. That is, who he is as the holy begotten son of God and what he did to save sinners by making atonement that is dying for sin on a cross. Faith is the thing that unlocks the picture of God. Faith in Jesus. Here's how you know this, can this has happened to you. Do you want to know, if, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt if this has happened to you? Every ounce and every fiber of your being will desire holiness in God. And you will know beyond a shadow of doubt when you sin that it doesn't feel good, it makes you feel dirty. The darkness cannot mingle with light. But when the light of the gospel has actually peered and shined into your heart to regenerate you, to make you a new person that is a Christian, you will love a beyond all else and all things God. You will pant for him. You will thirst for him. You will long to be in his presence. Spend time in prayer. Read the word. Drink from the eternal brook. Jesus takes blind eyes 
with the gospel, he switches on the light and illuminates the soul's ability to see God. Have you seen God? There are three ways to respond to this. If you have seen God, worship him. That's not a law or a yoke. That is the greatest soul's treasure and delight for those who are in Christ. If you have not seen God, ask yourself concerning this, why? And um, if you want to see God, believe upon this one man and God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That was point number one, what is accurate belief? We are now moving to the second point of the sermon. I'd like to show you what is evident life. Well, as we move into our second point here, you'll notice that John, um, he repeats this phrase, if we say, twice. First, he says it in verse six, and then he says it again at the beginning of verse eight. If we say, and coming out of the first point, you'll remember that the entire gospel message that John had received and he was passing on to this church had come right from what Jesus had said. In other words, the gospel is a message of words which contain content. Our belief, you and I believe, is expressed with words. Confession is an essential part to the Christian faith. But you want to know what also is an essential part to the Christian faith paired along with this idea? Our lives, our lifestyle, the way we live and what we, in relationship to what we say we believe. In other words, the evidence of what we believe should be found in the works of our hands. If you look there, John says this in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. That verse pretty much just speaks for itself. Imagine this. I don't know how many of you are athletes or how many of you have athletic friends, but imagine one of your friends or somebody that you knew was a marathon runner. Okay? You go to the race. He or she just gets done running 26 point whatever miles, two miles. You watch them cross the finish line after a long race. They come up to you. They're sweating. They're exhausted. They're panting with breath. And they say, I'm so thirsty. And you being a good friend, you knew it was going to happen, so you came ready. They approach you, you reach into your bag, you hold out a nice cold jug of water. You say, here, friend, drink. And your friend takes the jug of water and says, thank you so much, stares at you and holds it. And you're like waiting for the moment that they're going to drink. Wouldn't you be so confused? Wouldn't you say, hey, I brought you this you look exhausted. I brought you this jug of water. Aren't you going to drink? And the person said, well, the water's great. The water's great, and I know it will rehydrate me. I believe that. Um, it'll quench my thirst. It'll give me what my body needs. But they never take it to their lips and drink. All they do is just stand there and hold it in their hands while the water bottle drips beads of sweat off of it. Well, you know that this would probably never happen. But this often happens with people's confession of faith as it 
uh, pertains to Christianity. They say they believe, but if you actually examine their life and faith, they never drink. All they do is just kind of stand there and hold the gospel. They don't drink the gospel. They don't enjoy the gospel. In this immediate context, the lifestyle of walking in darkness that John is referring to here has to do with fellowship with the church. In other words, some people during this Gnostic group of false teachers were claiming to know and have fellowship with God and not his people. They were encouraging their followers to live separate lives from the church. And John's point here is that their attitude towards Christian community and the church was proof that their fellowship with God was a lie. Why? Because you can't claim to have fellowship with God and not his bride. These false Christians did not see or believe that their unwillingness to be in relationship with other Christians in the church was sin. But this is exactly what John is saying it was, that their lack of life lived with the rest of the believers within inside of the church was actually a type of walking in darkness. In other words, you cannot say you love Christ, but not his bride. These false teachers here not only minimized the idea of community, but they diffused it and they positively justified it on the grounds of their own understanding of the gospel. Yet nevertheless, all throughout this book of 1 John, what we have is John saying to us, no one can truly love God without loving his children. To live life in the light of God's light, Christ, means for believers to have intimate fellowship with one another. This is why we hold membership in such high value here at our church. Um, this is why we emphasize community as much as we can at, at our church. Number one, to push back on our American culture, which, which uh, promotes this idea of individuality and autonomous living from community. But number two, to um, push back on inaccurate practices or interpretations of Christian faith that say, it's all about me and God. Um, actually, if you read the Bible, it's never about God and individuals, and it's always about God and his people. When we are truly connected to community, the community of the church, we will inevitably walk in light. The gospel, through relationships, shines light in dark places and holds us accountable. We need this, my brothers and sisters. We need to be held accountable. Other brothers and sisters in the faith need to know how we're doing. We need to know how they're doing. We need to serve, walk with, encourage each other instead of walking in darkness away and living secluded lives. We need each other to grow in holiness. And I'll go so far to say we will never reach the level of holiness in which God intended for us and the church to reach if we are not walking in the light together as a family, covenant family of believers. God has purposed for this church to be the main means of your spiritual growth. Yes, it is awesome to have other Christians, friends outside of the church. Go hang out with them. Praise God. That's good. I have it too. But God has primarily purposed your sanctification to happen inside this church among these people whom you worship and proclaim Christ with. Why? Because these are the people 
that are different than you. These are the people who think differently than you, who have different personalities than you, hobbies and interests and things like that. This is where sanctification happens, inside the diversity of the church. I read this quote not too long ago. Do you remember? It was out of a book called 12 Ways That Your Phone Is Changing You. It's a great book. If you haven't grabbed it, you should. I'm going to read the quote again because it's really appropriate to what we're talking about here. The author says this. We must withdraw from our online worlds to gather as a body in our local churches. We gather to be seen, to feel awkward, and perhaps to feel a little unheard and underappreciated, all on purpose. In obedience to the biblical command, not to forsake meeting together, we each come as one small piece, one individual member, one body part, in order to find purpose, life, and value in union with the rest of the living body of Christ. This feeling of awkwardness, this leaving the safety of our online friendships, this mingling with people we don't know or understand in our local churches is incredibly valuable to our souls. Church is a place for real encounters with others and for true self-disclosure amongst other sinners. In the healthy local church, I do not fear rejection. In the healthy local church, I can pursue a spiritual depth that requires agitation, frustration, and the discomfort of being with people who conform not to my kingdom, but to God's. The challenge for us is to cherish corporate worship, that most countercultural of practice, practices for which no substitute can be found. This is the gospel that God's people is for or are for you. I want to give you us two applying questions in light of this section here. Number one, I'd like to ask you if you're living in darkness. Um, in other words, are you living in sin? Of course, um, we all sin daily. I'm not, I'm not talking about that type of sin. I'm talking about, are you living in a type of sin that you know is wrong, yet you have not yet made a resolve for the Lord to fix? Are you in a comfortable sin that you just relax in and maybe even enjoy? Um... This is a great time for you to examine your confession if indeed you actually are a Christian. If you are a Christian and you're in habitual sin, I'm calling you to repent um, this morning. That's the first call. And the second call is after repenting, I'm calling you to be known amongst brothers or sisters. And I know that that idea can feel intimidating. Let me just tell you our intention with keeping you accountable. Our intention is to give you grace without an ounce of condemnation or judgment to remind you of the Savior who died for sin and whose work is enough to make you and keep you and preserve you as holy. We want to encourage you and strengthen you. Are you in sin? Second question, a broader question for many of us is this. Are you intimately fellowshipping with the members of this church? Are you involved in this place in such a way that your great intention behind all of your service is actually to know and enjoy and love people? It's a great opportunity for you to examine your faith if you indeed want to love the bride 
as much as the groom does. These are the marks of historical Christianity, faith in Christ, and holiness lived out within community of the local church. Amen? That was point number two, dependent confession. Uh, dependent confession. I'd like to finish our time together. Um, sorry, this is point number three, uh, dependent confession. I said in the beginning of the sermon that John was writing in many ways to help us see if our faith is true. And uh, the point that I would like to make to you here as we close, which is in every way just as important as the first two points that we've covered, is this. That we as Christians, as, as believers, must come to terms with our total dependence and need for God. If you look there in verses 8 through 10, this is what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is exactly what these false teachers during this time were doing. Through their self-proclaimed knowledge of God and faith system, they were telling other people in the church that they had arrived at a place of sinless perfection. That they, through their faith system and knowledge of God, have reached a level elevating them to a state of sinlessness. Some of you probably know the famous preacher from history. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon uh, one time was preaching on the depravity of man, preaching the sermon. And uh, he expounded greatly upon the depravity of man, the fact that we need God in every way. And after he was done preaching his sermon, this guy came up to him. And the guy said, hey, Charles, can we talk? And Charles said, sure. And the man said, well, I just want to let you know that I totally disagree with your sermon. That, um, that's dangerous. <laughs> We're talking about Spurgeon here. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, totally disagree with your sermon. Um, the old man in me is dead, and I have reached a place of holiness without sin. So Spurgeon says, oh, really? Okay, um, you want to come over to my house for dinner tonight? And the guy said, sure. And so the guy came over Spurgeon's house. They had dinner together. The man elaborated much on his sinless state. And then, after watching the man recline, Charles Spurgeon took the glass of water that was sitting next to his dinner uh, plate and threw it in the man's face. Threw the glass of water. <laughs> this is awesome. Come on. Threw the glass of water into this dude's face. Do you want to know what the man did? The man stood up and started yelling and screaming and kicking and letting Charles Spurgeon have it for his lack of courteousness and respect for his opinion. And then you want to know what Spurgeon said? Ah, you see? The old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. <laughs> John is telling the church that it is not possible for anyone, especially Christians here included, to reach a place or level of spirituality where there is no sin. And if someone thinks that they have reached this place, that day that they stand in direct opposition to the gospel. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And there is only one person who ever lived who can claim this. And it is through his life and his godliness and his love and in his keeping the law 
that we have been able to see a level of holiness and righteousness unattainable. It is through examining the person and work of Christ where we are humbled to see our estate. You see, all true men and women of God, after seeing God for who he truly is in Christ, do not say I'm sinless. Do not even say that they're good. But all true men and women of God say, like Isaiah said in chapter 6, after seeing the Holy One, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man or woman of unclean lips. I know this, that after seeing the King, the Lord Almighty, in all of his sinless life and perfection, I am unworthy. This is why Peter, after being called by Christ, said to him, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. This is why Paul, in the book of 1 Timothy, called himself the worst of sinners. For who can say that they have elevated themselves to the position of Christ? I've never met somebody inside the church to say that they're sinless. Regardless, this text is still for them. But you want to know who else this text is for? The prideful Christian. How do you know you're a prideful Christian? If you think that you're not. If you think that that your works of righteousness are not dirty as filthy rags. If you think that, that your good deeds are good enough for God, is what I'm trying to say. And so now I'm going to stray from that and get to the soft-hearted Christian whom the Lord seeks to minister to today. Talk to the person who knows that their works are dirty and nothing can ever add up. See, for you, you don't struggle with that side of pride. You struggle with self-condemnation and feelings of guilt, feeling dirty, like you're, too, not, you're, you're not good enough for God. This is one of the greatest struggles on this side of heaven for the Christian. After sin. Because the Spirit works in us and shows it to us. But then, if, we're not, if we don't handle it right away the way that we should, what Satan do, does is creep in, and what he seeks to do, do with it is, is throw us these lies and tempt us to believe that we are too dirty to be the Lord's that we can't go back to him. That he and his holiness is unapproachable and we in our sinfulness cannot go there as if there's a, there was a divide. But I say that the Spirit's work in our heart to see our sin is the greatest gift because the Spirit does not want us to sit there and navel gaze as if our works totally identify us. But the Spirit's main goal is to take us there, then to elevate us high, to see the Son of God crucified for you. This is what God, the Holy Spirit, wants to do. And so if you find yourself following Jesus constantly in a pity party, thinking that you don't deserve God or can't draw near to God, I want to remind you of the cross. That there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath that flood, they lose all of their guilty stains. In other words, if your faith is in the blood of Christ to wash and cleanse you, as John says, you are spotless. You're guiltless. You are set free. You are cleansed. 
You are without sin. You are justified. You are righteous. You are beloved. You are doted over, danced over. You are the apple of God's eye. God loves you and identifies you and elevates you to the status of Christ himself because you have union with him. The rhythm of grace in the Christian life is um, repentance, belief, and obedience. And Christ is the one that holds it fast as the firm foundation. I ask you, have you come to the end of yourself? God is making his church new from the inside out. I'd like to finish off from Psalm 32 with a gospel promise for you, for you who believe in Jesus. Oh. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one who, whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. My brothers and sisters, is your faith true? Do you believe upon the Son? Is your life bearing fruit of evidence of knowing and being intimately involved with the local church. And as you follow Christ, are you confident in the work of Christ alone that has the power to save? I sure hope so. I'm thankful. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, um, for being such a merciful Savior. You don't leave us in our sin, nor do you want us to navel-gaze in such a way that we find ourselves self-condemned you are the powerful God and you have indeed saved us and you by your own declaration have said that we are righteous. Therefore, what you say, let it be true. We say amen to you and amen to the gospel. Thank you for washing us and cleansing us. Make this church, Parkview Church, pure, holy, and blameless as we seek to live in the light of Christ together. I pray these things in Jesus' name.